This is Sean Hazlett, and behind me is Mount Shasta. Hello, everyone. I'm here again with Preston Dennett, who was actually a very popular guest. So we're going to have him on today to discuss the weirdness of Lake Shasta. Yeah, Mount Shasta is a really interesting place. Uh, it's unique, and it's the l- largest lone peak in the world, actually. So just geographically mm-hmm. al- alone, it's unique. Uh, but it is a mecca for all things strange. Seriously, I mean, it has, uh, where do I even start? Um, It's got all kinds of, uh, it's sacred to the local Indians, the Shasta Native Americans. Some very interesting petroglyphs there. There are numerous accounts of people who say that they've been inside the mountain. Not just a couple, I mean, like a dozen, where people have supposedly found caves that go down into tunnels where they found artifacts and there are photographs of some of these artifacts well isn't it isn't it a an old or like a dormant volcano so there's a lot of lava tubes exactly throughout it but reportedly according to numerous accounts there are people who found you know gold artifacts uh giant skeletons Uh, this is largely in the past not a whole lot of recent stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, but surprisingly numerous um, I, I was really quite shocked. It's supposedly the lair of the ancient Lemurians. Uh, so tall, human-like, quote, ETs, uh, who, re- um, according to some sources, still reside there. I don't know, but there's all, it's also very well-known Bigfoot hotspot. <laughs> A lot of reports of Bigfoot in the whole Mount Shasta area and the surrounding, you know, the Trinity area. Is that still today or that are there also kind of oh, yeah. reports? No, no, that's still quite current. And of course, UFOs as well, uh, which really stretch back all the way to the 1920s, which is kind of unusual for UFOs, which really weren't popularized in any way until the late 1940s, the modern age of the UFO. Well, how were they described in the 1920s? Were they described as... Um, you know, UFOs were they given you know mystical given you know given I guess the 1920s it's still possible that people would construe that as something from you know outer space things like that but yeah the um, idea the idea of extraterrestrials was just beginning to enter into the consciousness you know exactly. HG HG Wells and Jules Verne were starting to talk about that at the turn of the century uh, but that in terms of you know mainstream thought, the, the idea of extraterrestrials wasn't really on people's minds. Uh, but Wishar Survey, a very early researcher, wrote a book and uh, just you know interviewed a bunch of people in the Mount Shasta area and described them seeing objects, which they basically called flying boats, is how they put it. But they were very much your modern day UFOs, metallic, you know chrome-like flying saucers flitting around, um, some rising out of the 
coastal waters there, uh, which is definitely a thing, USOs, unidentified submersible objects. And uh, some very interesting early, early reports of, this kind of leads back to the so-called Lemurians, uh, of people coming out of the mountains who were very, very tall, very fair, dressed in robes, long, long hair, and would trade for goods using actual, you know, gold nuggets and things like this. Didn't apparently have an understanding of money and would come out and go to the local trading posts and buy, you know, food and supplies with gold. And a surprising number of reports of this. So, And, and these are also in the 1920s or later? Yeah. No, that was mostly 1920s, 1930s around then. Yeah, regular sightings in the Mount Shasta area pretty much every year or, or so. Basically, your average sightings, mostly anomalous lights. That's the most common report that people see. And by that, I mean, you know, lights darting around at right angles, hovering, zipping across the sky non-conventional movement, almost always silent, and sometimes coming quite low. And in fact, there is a phenomenon where UFOs will hover over vehicles and shut them down, basically cause the engine to fail. And some of the earliest reports of that come from the Mount Shasta area. So that's kind of interesting. Now, I, I my understanding is that sometimes people confuse the lenticular clouds that form over Shasta as UFOs, but what you're describing is not something you can confuse with a cloud formation, just to, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, lenticular clouds are dramatic and have that almost perfect saucer shape, but they stay in place largely. I mean, they can you know, float across the sky, but when they do, of course, they lose their shape, but they, but they will like hover over a mountain specifically. And they're generally massive. Uh, no, the, this is not what people are talking about. We're talking about actual glowing objects uh, or silver, you know, solid craft. And there are enough reports where it's clear that, no, these are not lenticular clouds. Yeah, pr given primarily their motion and their luminosity and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in 1980, I believe it was, there was a huge wave of sightings over this area, which actually wasn't just the Mount Shasta area, but all the surrounding counties. And it's very famous in the UFO field because there was police officers from five different counties who were watching these things. And some of them were chasing them down the road. I mean, literally hundreds of police officers saw this. So these are fairly credible witnesses compared to your average Joe and came quite close to these objects in some cases within a couple of hundred feet. It was an enormous wave of sightings that caught the attention of investigators. And actually, there was a congressional investigation into UFOs at one point. And one of the main researchers, James Harger, PhD, referenced this case, which let me see was in Redding, Red Bluff, Shasta, McLeod, Beaver Creek, and you know, hundreds of residents in these areas, of course, saw these. And it was over a period of days. So this was a huge wave of sightings that has never been explained. You said it was in the 80s, like early, late? Yeah, it was October 1980. There's all kinds of documentation of this. It's an, really one of the biggest waves of sightings that took place in California still to this day. It's what we would call a flap, I guess, because sightings are fairly random. They occur not in a wholly predictable way. Mm -hmm. 
but occasionally there are these what we would call flaps or waves. For example, I mean, I wrote a whole book about one wave here in Southern California, which occurred in 1992. And it went on for two years, 1992 to 1994. It involved not only sightings, but landings and cars being chased on the road and the whole deal, people being taken on board. And that's what we see, these weird flaps. And I speculate, I mean, I'm just speculating here. Yeah, that was going to be that, my next question. Where are they correlated with? <laughs> yeah, I think that they, this is sort of a publicity campaign, honestly, because these turn up every five years, every 10 years. And it seems to me that it's contrary to normal UFO behavior where they're very evasive, very elusive. But in these cases, it's clear they want to be seen. They're coming down, they're putting on displays. It's very dramatic, very brazen. That's not just me saying this. Uh, UFO researchers decades earlier started to coin these types of events, displays, uh, because they've taken place all across the United States and the world. I think one of the most recent ones was Stevensville, Texas, which has to be at least 10 years ago now. But, you know, Hudson Valley UFO wave of 1980s, uh, Gulf Phoenix. Breeze, Phoenix Lights, 1994. Uh, these are clearly, I think, well-orchestrated events, carefully planned. Again, I'm speculating here. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm not an ET. At least I don't think so. Maybe in a past life. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's clear they want to be seen. That much I think we can conclude uh, with pretty, pretty good certainty that this, this is something they are doing intentionally. But why these particular locations, like Brownsville, uh, you know, or, or we said Stevensville, Texas? Like, yeah, that seems uh, random. Yeah, I, I was looking at that because there was one in Withville, Virginia, tiny little town. Hudson Valley is fairly remote, but it's very close to, you know, New York, a mm-hmm. huge population center. And that's true for Topanga Canyon. So little community of eight, 10,000 people at that time. But right next to LA, which is you know millions, maybe it's less um, light pollution, easier to see them. I don't know. I'm I'm just speculating. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, I think that what the pattern I noticed is they pick a small town next to a large population center. In some of these cases, it's very hard for, to say. I really don't know, but it does seem like they pick a little small town kind of thing. In some ways, it's like a, it reminds me of a book tour or a concert concert tour. <laughs> Well, they'll just pick various locations and travel across the world, you know, putting on a little show. Uh, what do you think they hope to gain by that, though, if it's a publicity campaign? Uh, I feel like they are trying to get people used to their presence, to announce their presence, to convince people of the reality of the, the extraterrestrial presence on our planet uh, in a sort of subtle-ish way because you can imagine what would happen if you know one of these events happened over a population center today you know of a million you know something a ufo hovered over new york or la or paris or london and stayed there for hours Mm -hmm. uh this would be sort of an end game (laughs) i mean it would be absolutely conclusive uh, there would be a lot of people who would be forced to accept this, and it would definitely rock society in a way that 
might cause us some problems, you know, socially. So I feel like they're doing it in a way that's very cleverly subtle mm-hmm. and that gives people an out. If they don't, if they're not ready to accept this, they don't have to. I don't know. I'm, I hate to speculate. All I know is that this yeah. does happen. <laughs> this is regular. We're overdue for another major wave. Uh, and I feel like at some point, the end game of all of this is open official contact. To Once we reach that hundredth monkey, once we have enough people who have accepted the presence of this and know it's real and have seen it themselves, uh, I think they'll come down and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. There's going to be some people who, you know, run for the hills to worship them and others who run for the valleys to get their guns and shoot at them. But by and large, I think society is right on the cusp of being ready for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even mainstream skeptical scientists, astronomers, Almost 100% admit that there has to be life out there, even if it ha- hasn't visited us or not. Well, it's, yet. Just, it's just math. It's just math and time, right? Yeah. Like the universe is, you know, billions of years old. Uh, right. You know, it's not inconceivable. And there are trillions of stars. And, you know, it, it, it's statistically improbable that we're the only species that has developed to our state of being at this at yeah. this time. To us right now, traversing interstellar distances seems inconceivable with you know the current science that we have but give somebody a million years ahead of us and you know those things probably will likely rapidly fall away but getting people to retain their credibility right or you know authority figures to retain their credibility they have to be very very careful about what they choose to accept and what they choose to debunk, um, because there are some charlatans out there, and if, and if the wrong authority figure supports the wrong narrative, right, then they could be in trouble. So, um, yeah. part of it is just <laughs> is, is trading capital. But but the language—that's why I think the language changes that you don't like. I think help help authority figures get around some of this. So like the UAP, you know, substitute for UFO, then they can credibly say, we've seen this phenomena. It's on cameras um, or on very sophisticated instruments that, you know, we spend billions of dollars funding our military with. So you can't deny it. We just, you know, we did, we, whatever, we can only focus on the physical evidence that we do have. But as long as people do that, they're safe, right? Now, the the difference, though, is between knowledge, well, I shouldn't say knowledge, but knowing and believing, right? Knowing is much more powerful. And, and people who have had these experiences, they know. Yeah. Whereas people, people <laughs> like me, I, you know, I haven't um, experienced it yet, but I'm not, I don't deny that people have had these experiences, right? I believe that they've had these experiences. Yeah. So, well, I'm, that's, I came into this field a complete skeptic. I didn't believe it and I didn't know it. <laughs> uh, and it was very difficult when I started hearing, you know, people that I loved and trusted t- telling me these stories. Because it was clear that they had had personal experiences, 
And uh, I'm like, no, the stars are too far away. <laughs> Don't you realize how far away they are? There's no way this could happen. It was a false assumption based on you know, our current level of technology that people would yep. travel between the stars using propellants. And that's, I don't think yeah. what's happening yeah, I, I, I mean, if this is as far as we get, we get technologically, then yeah, there's, it's impossible. But you have to you know, give, give other civilizations, if they exist, the benefit of the doubt in a million years. And you know, what they're doing will seem, would seem like magic, to quote Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. And the fact is UFOs do exist. That's not, you can't argue that people are seeing stuff. Right. Right. Um, that is un, incontrovertible. We know this 10% about of the population believes they have seen a UFO. And you can argue about what it is all you want till the cows come home, but this is a real phenomena. Yeah. Um, for there are definitely sure. things in our sky that we don't, you know, that, that people have seen that we can't explain. Yeah. And 50, over 50% of the population in America, in the U.S., believes the subject. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it, it sort of swings back and forth. I think it's over 50% now. Um, 60 yeah, I would imagine it would be increasing given the, you know, the ATIP program and things like that. Like our government is spending money. Yeah. And you don't have to see a UFO to, you know, look, there's, radar return cases mm -hmm. we've got all these really interesting photographic and film cases now and if you look into the evidence objectively you know not through the lens of your belief system right just looking at the facts you will see that there's an enormous amount of very compelling evidence to support the subject and now I've going back myself. to shasta yeah <laughs> Going back to Shasta, I got us derailed. I'm sorry. <laughs> Going back to Shasta, if someone were to go up and, and visit Shasta, are there certain hot spots or areas where they should be on, on alert or on the lookout for some of the various phenomena that you spoke about? Um, it is all over that area. So I can't say like one specific spot, um, but th that does seem to be your... Uh, what do we call a flap area, you know, a, mm -hmm. an area of high concentration of sightings, uh, which, you know, every area across the globe seems to have certain areas that are more conducive to sightings. And that's definitely one of them. I had my own sighting up there in, let's see, it was the summer of 1992. And uh, I, this is when this huge wave of sightings was going on in mm -hmm. my former hometown, Topanga. And I was embroiled in a massive investigation. And the whole family's like, we're going up to Sh you know, Shasta. I'm like, oh, I don't want to leave right now. I'm kind of busy. But yeah. you know, I didn't want a mystification, of course. So we go up there. And uh, the whole family was there. And uh, my brother, Mark, who had seen a UFO, his wife, Christy, who's had encounters as well, and I stayed up late hoping to see something. <laughs> and uh, we had brought a big old, old flashlight, which, you know, there are many reports of people blinking their lights, headlights and flashlights and stuff at objects in the sky and they'll blink back. So this was kind of our thought. We're like, let's try this. And uh, we'd stayed up late and everyone else was asleep in their tents. This is a heavily forested area, mind you. So we couldn't really see a huge sky above us. It was just a tiny circle through the trees. When my brother Mark shouts out, hey, I just saw something. And I'm looking at him kind of skeptically. 
because I was still trying to come to grips with all this anyway. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, no, I'm serious. Hand me the flashlight. And he flashes it in the sky. And I'm looking up, of course, as Christy is. And darned if this light doesn't flash down at us. And my first thought is, well, satellite, you know, or something like this. Well, what color was the light? Was it just like white light? Was it yellow, green? It was white. Very bright white. A little bit different than your light. Because it seems to sort of, how would I describe Move slowly. You know, light flashes. It just kind of zoom, came out and went off. And we got, you know, gas. I'm like, oh, my God. And he flashed it again. Um, and it flashed again back at us in a slightly di- different position. And I don't know if you've seen satellites, but if you go out at night, you can see satellites fairly easily moving mm-hmm. across the sky. And they're just slow moving uh, points of light, very much like a star. This was not that. This was something that was clearly responding to us. And uh, that really impressed me. I'm like, huh. That was like one of the real first sightings I had that made me scratch my head that I couldn't explain as a helicopter, plane, balloon, ball, lightning, satellite, shooting star. When you go through this list in your head of like, what could this be? Right. Uh, You know, I'm a huge astronomy buff and there's just, I don't know what it could be. I'm not going to say it was an alien craft, but the fact is we felt like it was responding to our, I mean, we would flash and it would flash back and not just once, uh, at least twice. It may have been three times. Uh, I'm a little bit hazy on that. I thought it was twice, but Marco and Christy said, no, no, it did it three times. No. Was it just like, like how close was it? Was it hovering? Was it moving? Was it stationary? Um, that's another thing we slightly disagree about. I felt like it was pretty high up there. Um, I'm going to say very hard to tell because if you don't know the size of something, uh, yeah. you can't really tell. Uh, but to me, it looked like it was 10, 20,000 feet up. Christy's like, no, I felt like this was, you know, maybe two, 3,000 feet. And Marco, he wouldn't really say, he's like, I don't know. Uh, and I will say, you know, Christy and Mark's vision is better than mine. I, mm-hmm. I wore, uh, wore glasses, so, uh, but it's, no, my corrected vision is, is good, but their vision is a little bit sharper than mine. They don't wear glasses, at least not at that time. But I do remember it was thrilling, and I, and I couldn't explain it, and I felt like it was a genuine UFO, which to me, UFO is synonymous with alien craft, because I don't know what else these things could be. I mean, it could be um, even even if you're assuming there's alien civilizations, right? It could also be a probe, right? So, yeah. like something that's responsive, but still, like it doesn't invalidate that it it could be extraterrestrial. Yeah, and the reason I say that is because if you track this phenomenon, this is the same thing that's clearly landing, <laughs> that's clearly has ETs coming out of it, that's pulling people on board, that's appearing on radar, that's being photographed. It's the same thing. But it was just way the heck up there uh, in that case. And that ended up being the first sighting of several I had that year. Uh, for, for me, that was a huge year. I was 
course, at the point now where I'm tromping around through the fields, I'm like, I'm going to see this. This is not good enough for me to just talk to people. I need to know what's going on here. I need personal experience. So I, I know from myself that this is a real phenomenon. Uh, and where where on Shasta was was that? If you could, this was at south, it was south of Shasta. Okay, so there was like a wilderness south there that you, where you were camping. Yeah, some campgrounds. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a great place to see UFOs. Uh, so, I mean, UFOs can be seen anywhere. To be perfectly honest, people have, you know, you can go out in your backyard and see them. I wrote UFOs over New York. And I was shocked to see how many cases there were, like over Central Park, over the UN building. I mean, every, you can see them anywhere. And statistically, my own files, the most common place to see a UFO is in the suburbs, which kind of shocked me. I thought, no, it would be, you know, in some farm in Kansas or something out in the wilderness. Uh, but no, it's mostly the suburbs, which is where most of the people are. That makes perfect sense. And But yeah, also in urban areas and also rural areas. And I, every state, certainly every, pretty much every country, there's not a place on this planet that doesn't have a long history of sightings. You want to dig in, you can find it. But areas like Mount Shasta or Santa Monica Mountain Range, San Luis Valley, Colorado, Sedona, Arizona. Hudson Valley, upstate New York, uh, you know, Fife, Alabama, <laughs> every area seems to have a location that is particularly conducive to this for whatever reason. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but there's something that attracts UFOs to certain areas. All right. Um, any, any, anything else to look out for at Lake Shasta? Or sorry, I keep saying Lake Shasta, but Mount Shasta. Uh, yeah, Bigfoot. <laughs> um, I mean, do you uh, think that it's related? Uh, do you think that, that that's related to the UFO phenomena in any way? Uh, peripherally. Um, I will say that there are a cluster of cases, a couple of hundred, where people have experienced these two phenomena together, intersecting perfectly. So people will have a UFO sighting and Bigfoot is seen in the same area at the same time. And it, there's enough cases where I think it's safe to say this isn't fully coincidental because, I mean, this is the wild fringe of the fringe. Uh, I'm just going to put that caveat yeah, I mean, these out are, you're there. Just, but, you're just reporting on sightings but, of people. But, of that. But, you're not, but yeah, there are, there are no. weird cases where people have seen Bigfoot you know, exiting a UFO. <laughs> and I know how that must sound, I, but it is what it is. But I will just not 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 to not to be skeptical, just actually quite the opposite. One could at least, you know, come up with a hypothesis that and again, I'm just I'm this is 100 percent speculation on my part. Bigfoot has been extremely elusive in terms of getting like getting proof. And the best proof I've seen for something like that is that there's. Um, in 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 the Sierra Nevadas in California somewhere, there were recordings. Have you heard these things? Oh, yeah. Um, there's a, far more evidence than you might. I mean, there's hair samples. There's thousands upon thousands of footprint samples. Uh, 
audio recordings, and of course, the Patterson film and a bunch of other films. Um, there's a lot of evidence. But yeah, Mount Shasta and the whole area surrounding that has an enormous number of reports. And a lot of these are you know, people driving around late at night and it'll run across the road in front of you. Or they'll be in their campground and they can hear it howling. Or they throw rocks. This is a typical primate behavior. You know, they're mm -hmm. very vocal, lots of whistling and you know, howling sounds. Uh, so this is a great area for Bigfoot activity. I think you're probably even more likely to see, uh, encounter some, something along those lines than perhaps a UFO. Uh, but yeah, Mount Shasta is considered a very spiritual spot. There are groups that go there yearly to do spiritual retreats mm -hmm. and uh, all kinds of really interesting stuff goes on up in Mount Shasta, supposedly a vortex area. Uh, and it's so, it's a really beautiful spot too. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely worth visiting for those who are into this sort of thing. All right, Preston. Uh, thanks. Thanks for coming on again. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to discuss something interesting to do at Mount Shasta. And, you know, we'll get into that when the next, in the next episode. <laughs> so thank you again. Got it. See you soon. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Oh, <laughs>